Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you ever want your arrest for the murder of William Miller, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 5. I'm Bob Ruff, and I'm joined in the studio today by Mike Bussing. Hello. And Zach Weaver. Well, hello. Uh, in this week's episode, we covered some of the initial investigation and the police reports and leads that came in on the night the Bloomington Police Department started investigating the murder of Bill Little. In the episode, we learned some new information. We had the uh, the answering machine tape, the, the weird call that came in later, so we're going to talk about that and some of the other leads. I do want to mention also, though, before we get into answering questions and the content, our uh, captain of our transcription team, Jen Reese and Candela, has reached out to me and said that they've had a few people that move on to new life circumstances and aren't able to continue working on the transcription team. So once again, we need some more transcribers, and Mike used to have a resource list of everyone for anything ever that we needed for you know the whole crowdsourcing thing that people had written in. But when we got the new computer for Mike and I transferred everything, I did not transfer that. Right, the contacts list. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to have to start that over. Yep. So uh, if you're interested in being on the transcription team, I'll tell you right now, it is a lot of work. Jen and Pamela are doing a lot of work. And gosh, I feel bad, right? I'm trying to remember who has left and who is still there. But I know for sure Jen and Pamela are still on the transcription team doing the main transcripts. I think it's Rachel that's still working when she can a little bit. But it's a lot of work. I mean, it takes probably seven, eight hours to transcribe an episode. And so they'd like to have, Jen said she'd like to have like five or six people so they can really spread things out. So if you're interested in being a transcriber for Truth and Justice, just shoot an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. That's theories at truthandjusticepod.com, and in the subject line, put transcription. And Mike will get those, and he'll start sorting through them, and he'll be reaching out. But uh, we really appreciate the help. We appreciate the work the whole transcription team does on a daily basis, and we definitely want to get them the help that they need so that there's enough people that everybody's not completely overworked. And for those of you that are new to the show that don't know how the transcripts and all that works, besides the fact that we get the transcripts done and then Katie Ross puts them up on the website for people that want to read them, they also do is they print them out and then mail them to the inmate for whatever season we're working on. So, you know, we just send transcripts to edit because they can't listen. They don't have any internet. So, you know, we have transcripts were all sent for season three to Jesse Eldridge, for season two to Ed Eights. Sandy's been getting the transcripts for season six and uh, George got season four, so on and so forth. So 
Uh, this season, of course, we want to send out to Jamie Snow, who is uh, the man that was convicted of this murder, so he can read and, and, and know what's going on in the podcast. So one more time, that's theories at truthandjusticepod.com if you're interested in being a transcriber. And other than that, I think we can go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, guys, before we get into this, Jenny or Gina? Hmm, good. Let me ask you this. What did you think, Zach? I gotta say it's it's Jenny. I'm leaning towards Jenny for sure. Uh-huh. I don't hear Gina one bit. No, I don't either. Like I I can hear Jenna maybe, but I don't hear Gina. Well, the tricky part is the guy's got an accent. Yeah, he definitely has an accent, and he's completely shit faced. Yeah, right. well, he's well, he's calling it. At least it sounds like he is. What mm-hmm. do you think, Mike? Uh, I think it's Jenny for sure. I, and I, I think he was like you said had the accent and intoxicated and sounds a little funny, but yeah, I think maybe it's more like Ginny instead yeah. of Jenny. Yeah. Um, which is just just a different way of saying Jenny. But it was funny is when I read the report and the report said Gina, then I listened to it and my brain just automatically heard Gina. Yeah. I didn't think anything of it. It wasn't until I reached out to Danny Hartley and I said, hey, did Bill, because it says it, it, there's so much weird misinformation in that report, you know, maybe. But it says, you know, the guy subsequently learned that the victim had a girlfriend named Gina. So I asked Danny, I'm like, did he have a girlfriend named Gina? Because that's that's important. Because if this guy, if we know for sure that this is some guy an hour after Bill's killed, is calling and knows that he was killed or knows yeah. that he's dead, that could be an important piece of information. But Danny's like, no, I don't know a Gina. He said that uh, Bill was dating a girl named Michelle, I think he said, from Gibson City, which is where that whole scuffle and fight came about, where uh, Danny actually ended up punching the guy for Bill, as he put it. Yeah. But he's like, I had a girlfriend named Jenny. Or not Gina, but Jenny at that time. Uh, we had just recently broken up. She was my ex. And so that's when I was like, well, maybe it's, I think Mike said, well, maybe, maybe it's Jenny. And mm-hmm. we went back through and listened again and was like, holy crap, he is, he's saying Jenny. Yeah, it really sounds like Jenny. Yeah, it does. All right. Well, we're on this. Kathy says, could the murder have been a case of mistaken identity? Could the killer have thought Bill was Danny? I wonder if it was someone Jenny hurt and they confused Bill for Danny. Well, I think that's the, the big question, we need to find Jenny, and I've been working on it this week, the last name that Danny gave me, that he's either spelling it wrong or remembering it wrong, but I, I haven't been able to find uh, a Jenny with the last name he gave me anywhere. That could be a maiden name, too. Right, but usually on the background searches that I do, that'll come up. Okay. The maiden names will come up. But but yeah, that's the question. I mean, th- this whole answering machine thing could be a complete red herring. It's entirely possible that it's a red herring has nothing to do with the case whatsoever, but it's a, I mean, it's a weird set of circumstances. So to, to clear it up, aside from what the police report said, so this guy just, you know, gets home that night and checks his answer machine. And is this guy going, uh, you sound like a dumb whatever. And, you know, I want to talk to Jenny because her boyfriend just died. And he's like, what the hell is that? Wrong number. Yeah. And then the next day he really he reads the paper or whatever that a kid was killed that night. And he was like, oh, shit, well, maybe this is important. So he took the tape down to the police station and said, hey, this guy called the wrong number, but he left this uh, this message here for me. 
So it, you know, it, it could be nothing, but if it's not, I mean, that's, that's a lead. It's someone that knew in a day without cell phones, someone knew while police and the family were still at the crime scene who was killed or at least thought that it, apparently if it's connected, that it would mean that he thought that Danny had been killed. Yeah. And it's pretty coincidental. I mean, it, it's crazy that that is the time frame is so tight on that to not be connected. Right. Yeah. And I don't I mean, I know there was no other murders that night, but he didn't say that he got killed or he was shot. He just said her boyfriend died. Yeah. So then I, I don't know any way of, you know, it, Bloomington's not a big town. The odds of someone else dying that night. I mean, maybe we can scan through obituaries from that week or whatever to see if there were any other deaths yeah. of young people that day but i mean he's got to be talking about bill and and the fact that this guy's talking about bill so like i said a couple options here could be it means absolutely nothing and maybe the guy was just you know one of the guys on the scene that lived around the corner and then thought it was i mean who knows yeah but if it's let's say for example some scenarios if it's not nothing if this is i mean this this guy could know who killed bill yeah the other thing too is if if you're thinking it's nothing i mean that's an aggressive voicemail to leave right for it to be nothing you know it, mm-hmm. it, i don't think it's just somebody that happened to like hey maybe this is this woman's boyfriend that died it was aggressive i mean it right it, it felt attacking mm-hmm. yeah and he wanted yeah he was angry about the message i don't know it was weird because like is he angry at jenny yeah or is he angry at the guy leaving the message i mean he calls him a dumb mother effer and says he sounds stupid right the answering machine which was let's talk about the irony there that the guy who sounds drunk and stupid is trying to say someone else sounds stupid Mm -hmm. but so you know that's a possibility and i don't know so uh, we are again remember last week i told you we were without internet then we got internet and then yesterday while they were coming to fix our internet to make it better they disconnected our internet so we're in the meantime there are a lot more police reports that follow up on these leads that tammy Alexander has put into Dropbox for me that I can't access until hopefully by the end of the day today, which is Wednesday, uh, to see where else this goes. Because I want to know if they made any effort to track down who this person is. I doubt that they had any success if they're looking for a Gina. But my thought, I'll, I'll just fill you guys in in kind of real time. My thought for this week, well, the reason I was background searching the, uh, the, the Jenny that Danny Hartley told me was if I can find that Jenny, and I can play that tape for her, it's possible she can be like, yeah, that's so-and-so, and tell us who the caller is. If we know who the caller is, then we can go find out, like, how did you find out that he was killed? And it's possible one scenario, hypothetical scenario, is that the person who killed Bill told this guy, or this guy's him, yeah, you know, but, but but or told this guy, like, yeah, I just killed and that comes back to around to the, Kathy's question about could this be mistaken identity that someone was there actually looking for Danny Hartley, which is a scenario, Zach, that you had brought up yeah. a couple weeks ago was that maybe the reason the guy was waiting around is because he was waiting for Danny to come back. So I, I don't know. There's a lot more questions to get into about that. Oh, absolutely. As, as, as we move along. But it seems to me that it's very unlikely that it's not at least related. Yeah. But it could be completely innocuous or it could be something more. And so it, it could be like a second person, like a getaway driver. You know, we, we talk about the suspect leaving and going down the alley. Mm-hmm. And there was hints of a car being there. Right. What if there was someone waiting in that car? And it, that caller could be 
the getaway driver that doesn't fully know. He just knows someone was shot. He doesn't know right. who was shot. Right. And maybe they were there looking for Danny. Yeah. Um, because, you know, Dan- Danny's got a little more history with the law and things like that. At that point, I think he told me at that point he just had uh, some juvenile probation issue or something like that. But I know he was he was he was mixed up with some people for sure that certainly could have been looking for him, I guess. But you know, we'll, as, as we learn more, we'll keep going. But that's where we're at right now is I want to know who Jenny is and try to figure out who that caller is. And, and there could be some information on it in the uh, the reports that we have waiting for us on Dropbox. So we'll see. All right. Emma says episode 705 highlighted for me just how easy it is for even basic info to get skewed through police reporting. How does a message left on an answering machine phone become a two-way conversation with the callee telling the caller he had the wrong number at one point? Probably a completely insignificant detail, but it does make me question fact versus fabrication in other areas. It does, but I think I know. I think what happened is the officer that took the report, I think it was Sanders, if I'm not mistaken, I'm guessing he didn't listen to the tape is, is what happened. So it's a game of telephone, you know, right? where the guy comes in and says, hey, I got this tape. Somebody called me, they left a message, and it was the it was the wrong number, but I got this message. And, and they and when they're relaying that and they're retelling that story, he takes the tapes as he put it on the other officer's desk, and, he, and, he, and as he's relaying it. He understood that to mean somebody called me, I picked up, it was the wrong number, because he probably said he was very vulgar to me, and he called me names or yeah. used profanity. You know, So that, that's what I'm guessing happened, is that the officer that received the tape didn't actually listen to the tape. He was relaying what uh, Mr. Meekum told him when he dropped it off and just got the details wrong. That makes sense. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Wendell's got two questions. Do we know any more about the guy who asked specific questions about who got shot and how? Not right now, but again, those are the police reports that I have now. So that I didn't realize I didn't have all of the documents in the in the files, and that's why I reached out. I was like, why didn't they follow up on any of these leads? They did. There's a whole nother slew of police reports that that we have coming now to show how they followed up on these these leads. So we'll see where that goes from here. But um, I'm I'm sure that there was at least well, I shouldn't say I'm sure. I, I would assume there was some follow up on just about everything that we talked about in this week's episode. All right, his next question is, did the police trace the caller who left the answering machine message? But, Bob, I think we already answered that one. Yeah, yeah. again, waiting for those other police reports. I'm, I'm assuming they did some work to try to track that down at least. All right, Jane says, what if the unsub was waiting for Danny to return? Once the police lights became visible, he reacted and shot. That would need a different victimology analysis. Just a thought. 
It is. It, it it definitely kind of flips the whole thing on its head. In either scenario, we're looking at a personal cause homicide, meaning the person's purpose there wasn't to rob the store. So whether they're there because they have a problem with Bill or they're there because they have a problem with Danny, we're still looking for someone that has a personal connection to one or the other of them. But depending which one could could certainly change things. I I don't. And my issue with that scenario is what we talked about when Zach brought it a couple of weeks ago is it makes sense. That's why he's there so long. It makes sense. The guy waits 15 minutes or longer, but then why, why shoot him? Yeah. You know, if you're waiting that long, like, Oh, Bill's, you know, Danny's not here. Well, F you and, and pops. Him. I, I, I don't, I can't in my mind figure out why they would suddenly decide to just to kill Bill in that scenario. But what I want to know, and I'm hoping I can see in these other police reports are some interviews with, Maybe Steve Hill, because, you know, Bill wasn't scheduled. Steve Hill's the guy that worked the earlier shift. Bill wasn't scheduled to work that night. And I know one of the questions that you may have it, but I saw it on the on the fan page was somebody asking, when did that get scheduled for Bill to work for Miss Luna that night? And I don't know the answer to that. I know that, you know, Danny knew that Bill had volunteered to take that shift for her. I have to imagine that didn't happen like the day before. Yeah. You know, so there but but it's like who knew? Bill was going to be there and did anybody come in like looking for them, you know, because that would be significant, too. If somebody popped in and said, hey, when's Bill working or when's Danny Hartley going to be here and then and then leave that, you know, that's again leaning us towards that this is absolutely a personal cause homicide. But we need those police reports, which we should have. We have. I just don't have access to them yet. And it could also be one of those things where, you know, they said that Danny had friends with them. You know, it could be a friend of a friend, not that committed the murder, but there's retold these information basically on accident to somebody saying hey me and danny are going to run over here and see bill real quick Mm -hmm. and then the killer knows oh they're gonna be there now now is my chance rather than like actually planning it to go tonight you know on easter sunday i'm gonna go kill bill or danny right maybe it's just a chance that they're like oh i know they're there now we can go now right and then you know that's one thing you mentioned the other people in the car that did give us a little bit of insight into Danny's interview. And I know it was super hard to hear. Somebody even asked if we could make a transcript of his interview. The problem is the parts you couldn't hear, we couldn't hear either. So I, I, I don't know. And there was more than that, but it was literally me sitting on the phone like, I, I have no idea what he's saying. I cannot under, can't make out what he's saying. But one thing that he did share was the reason he left, which was because he had other people there with him in the car. You know, he was he said that, you know, Bill wanted him to stay. And he's like, no, I got to go. I got people in the car and he's going to take them. and He's going to come back before before he closed. So that's at least shed a little light on that situation. All right. Isabel says, has Danny been shown the photo of BP six three nine five? That's the mug shot that was a number that was identified by both Gutierrez and Martinez. I do not believe he has been. And, And I know I think he's seen the composite drawing. But it's been a while because Danny actually sent me a picture of a guy that that he he asked me, does this look like the guy in the composite? Because this is a guy that I think if if it wasn't Jamie Snow, this is another prime candidate that you should be looking at. But it, it doesn't. The picture he sent me doesn't really look like okay. the guy at all. The guy's pretty distinct. You know, he's got the way it was drawn, very kind of sunken in cheeks and and pronounced jawline and cheekbones. <laughs> Looks just, What's so funny? Looks just like Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the the mugshot I can tell you, and we're going to get around to that when we dig into that individual. It looks like 
they made the composite from his picture. It's that close. Donna has a few questions. First, does the fact that Bill was working another person's shift lean towards this not being a targeted attack on Bill? Well, again, that just depends on if the person knows. But, but honestly, that will help us, nar- as we move along, narrow the suspect pool. If this was a personal cause homicide, a, an attack personally on Bill himself, then we know we can narrow our suspects, our profile, down to people that knew he was going to be working. Because it wasn't like it was just a, a weird schedule. Gina Luna always worked Sunday nights. That's why her nephews or her whatever her family or the kids across the street were looking because she was always there on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. That was her normal shift. So someone knew that Bill would be there that Sunday night when he's not usually there. Mm-hmm. And so that, again, narrows us down. Whether they were looking for Danny or Bill, they knew that Bill and or Danny were going to be there. All right, your next question is, how did the other gas station robberies, I think she's talking about the ones in Leroy, play out? Were the suspects in and out fast? Were they holding up staff and customers? How many suspects were there, etc.? I'm starting to look into those. A guy named Ray Wilson, who is, uh, I, I mentioned he's a PI that's been working on this case for several years. He sent me some some information, and, and he's, he started to investigate these. He's, he's got, I read through them yesterday, and there are little bits of information, not a lot. I know that there was, like, he highlighted the ones where someone used a small caliber gun, a twenty two, people that were, like, later caught, you know, when they found the gun that was used. Um, so, but other than that, I don't know a whole lot. But now we have, since he's done the legwork of finding the list of all these robberies that the that the task force was working on. Remember, they had a task force specifically for these robberies that were occurring over a couple year period. So he's got a list of what they are. So now it sounds like with Bloomington PD, it's not a simple process, but uh, we can start filing maybe open records requests for those specific incidents. We may strike out because they were not them not being murders. That there, you know, there's a statute how long they have to maintain those records, so they may not have the records left. But at least there's a list. But one thing I did notice is between ninety and ninety one, there was a there was a ton of all these robberies, and shortly after Bill's murder, they just stopped. Hmm. Like there's not there's no more at least on the list Ray gave me, they stop in ninety one, and looks like they don't pick up again until ninety four. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Angela wants to know, were there any security cameras at any of the nearby businesses or houses that could have caught a glimpse of something helpful? No, I don't think so. I mean, the obvious answer to that is the bank that was across the street, the credit union. But in looking at the crime scene photos, I don't think there's anything that points toward the gas station. And even if there was, it wouldn't be enough to make anything out. And again, with the, you know, I, I feel like a broken record, but we'll see if that's anything that was done in the investigation, if they looked into it. But the, the, the credit union was set way back off the road. It seems like the suspect came and went from behind the building. The credit union is on the other side. So it's not like, you know, if the credit union was on the other side of the street, they might have seen somebody walking in and out. But no, I don't think so. Maybe it's just my opinion, but I don't think there was a ton of surveillance in 91. No, there really wasn't. Like you said, maybe a credit union, but a lot of those seem like they might even be pointed inward, not. Well, I was trying to think, were were ATMs a thing in 91? I don't think they were. Oh, seven. (laughs) I know, I was one. (laughs) I think they were. I'm going to go with they were because I think I saw (laughs) young whippersnappers. (laughs) Screw both of you. I'm me being a tad older than you guys. Uh, I was um, not 
seven or one at that time. But I seem to remember, I remember when debit and someone listening here may know the answer to this when it became a thing. I'd look it up, but I don't have the internet. But uh, I remember, so around 96 is when I opened like my first checking account. And at that point, I think debit cards were just becoming a thing. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure. I remember my senior year of high school, I went to visit. This is a weird story to tell, but I went to visit my aunt in Colorado. And I remember going to the store with her and she's like, I got this debit card. She says, it's like a credit card, but it takes money right out of my checking account. I'm like, no shit, that's crazy. Because I'd never seen anything like that before. That was in 96. Point being, I the one place where you do know there's always cameras is at an ATM machine. Or ATM. I guess you're not supposed to say machine. But I don't think I don't know if there was a, such a thing as an ATM in 1991. Pamela says Wiley Holt says he pumped gas at around 8.15 p.m. I wonder if that could have been the 8.12 no sale. And for the record, Pamela put a really good timeline up on the fan page. So if anybody yeah. hasn't seen it, go ahead and check it out. It's it's really good. And one thing I want to focus on before you answer this question, Bob, is Wiley Holt is a new is a new addition to to our time, to what we know about the timeline, right? I mean, he, we right. didn't realize there was another customer at the store at eight twelve or eight fifteen, right? And, and the thing is, personally, I don't think that Wiley Holtz has a time right, right? And I say that because there's a lot of detail he gives that doesn't fit with the rest of the narrative. Now, some people might say, "Well, oh, there, you know, I thought there must have been another customer there. Maybe that's the no sale." The problem is, there's no there's no difference. There's only a $4.63 gas differential. It doesn't say in the reports that I read, and this is what drives me crazy. The police didn't say, oh, you got gas? How much gas did you get? But there's, you know, so I would imagine you don't go get $4.63 of gas. Well, we already are assuming that the $3 is Gutierrez. Right, but I don't want to assume that because that's my theory. So say okay. say that's not accurate. Say this guy who says that he's there and gets gas and it's not at 8.15. There's only a $4.63 gas differential. Now, the $3 makes sense. It's an even amount. Right. Because back then, before the days, again, of debit debit cards and pay at the pump, you know, you 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 remember that. Are you guys at least old enough to remember that? Trying to click, 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 yeah. click, click, click to get to the even dollar amount? You know, four sixty three would be an odd charge yeah. for gas. Uh, there's also nothing in the register for a candy bar. If And so if Gutierrez is the $3, then that leaves a dollar sixty three. It's just a weird thing. Like either you're filling up, or you're putting in five bucks, or you're doing whatever. Like in ninety one, I can't see somebody, and this is just speculation. I just can't see somebody like pumping like a four sixty three. That seems about right. Yeah, you know, it it doesn't it doesn't seem to add up. But but also, so he's saying when he shows up, there's people all over the place. He says that he pulls up, he's at the one pump island. There's another car. It, is, it gets a little confusing because he talks about like a tan car twice. But if I read it right, there's two different vehicles. Yeah, it sounded like there was one at the the same pump island and uh-huh. then one next to the building. Right. And there was one at the pump island when he was out there with it had a black male in it. He goes inside, talks to talks to Bill. Doesn't say anything about Bill seeming nervous, nobody else being in there. Now the or unsub, if he was in there at that point, could have been hiding around the corner. But but you have Gutierrez describing somebody that looks exactly the same as Martinez and the Lunas are des- describing. So that from eight oh five to eight twenty one this guy's there, so maybe he's hiding around the corner, but he didn't say anything about Bill seeming nervous, nothing like that, n- nothing like he was dropping chains, anything like that. And there's a guy out there in the parking lot. Then he comes back out, and I, I assume that car's gone now, but now there's another car 
parked on the side of the building. I personally think that he has his time wrong, that he was probably there earlier is the thing that makes the most sense to me. Cause like, how did nobody else see all the, cause it, then you're talking about this is about 815 by 820. Martinez is outside. Yeah. Pumping, you know, putting air in his tire. So like, did all, just these, these, all these people come in. There's no gas differential that matches up. There's no, nothing on the register tape that matches up. And then by the time Martinez gets her a couple minutes later, everyone's gone and the guy's in the store now. It, it, I think it's possible. Yeah, it's possible that that 812 might have been a no sale from him coming in. It's possible. It just doesn't seem likely to me. But if it's accurate, but the time's wrong, now we have a little bit of a different story. If that brown car, because remember, Brown, Mr. Brown, saw the brown car and the guys walking down the alley around the corner on East Home. Maybe they had been there, done that recon, dropped one of them stays, the other one drives around the corner, something like that. Then it becomes very relevant. But I mean, I don't think I don't think these are questions we can answer. We can just hypothesize about them. Well, let's talk about Mr. Brown. Yeah, he's an interesting thing too. So I did a little more research into him. Mm-hmm. So where he lives, right? He's because I was trying to figure out where was he at when he saw all this. So his house, you remember, Mike, when we went back and walked down that alley, and it tees into East Holm. Yeah, his house is directly across East Holm from the alley. So like from his front window, he could look right down the alley all the way to the back of the Clark station. And then he could also obviously see up and down East home. So he says that he saw, it doesn't say he saw the people get into the car, but he saw two people in the alley about eight fifteen, And he saw that Brown car, Brown or tan car on East home right there, kind of by the light. So that, I mean, that to me is significant that there just happens to be two people in the alley right after, or right around the time that the witnesses all said, they saw the the offender that killed Bill flee down the alley. Did he say anything about if they were running or walking or anything like that? Said walking, I believe. It didn't say they were running. I think he said he saw them walking down the alley. But again, that that goes back to the whole discussion on on our behavior analysis. How much credit are we giving these guys? You know, if they are are these smart criminals who are you know like okay now we're out walk stay calm look calm you know have your getaway car parked around the corner. Walk out like nothing happened, nothing to draw attention to ourselves. But then we had the reports that people heard tires squealing away. Right. And I found another report where somebody said that they saw, I don't remember if I read it in this week's episode or not, or it was one I just read, but someone saw a car speed away from the gas station right about the time the sirens got there, or the the police got there. But the witnesses that were there said the, the guy that came out wasn't in a car. Yeah. You know, or so did they just see Danny Martinez get in his car and drive away? I don't know. I don't know. There's so many... It's like we we kind of thought we had a pretty good grip on what happened. And now as we're expanding our investigation, we're realizing there's more possible scenarios there. So one thing that I'll caution both of you and the listeners and myself on is not to get locked into a theory, not to put blinders on and assume we've got it figured out. We have got to be able to adapt as new information comes in because this whole thing may get flipped on its head when we start digging deeper. Mm-hmm. I agree. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, Amy says, does the post-murder behavior come into play here? Thinking of Jim Clemente's information about Heyman Lee's body being concealed because he knew she would be with her killer specifically. So if Bill's killer essentially did this in public and did nothing to conceal the body afterwards, does that mean that there's no personal connection between Bill and the killer? No, but that's a really good discussion because, you know, I love talking about behavior analysis. So what she's referring to, post-defense behavior, when you're looking at a crime scene to determine the type of offender you're looking for, right, to profile. Heyman Lee's case was a different scenario, right? She disappears. 28 days later, they find her body buried in the woods somewhere. The the implication there is that this is someone with a known personal relationship to her because in the scenario they were in, that they had killed her somewhere where no one else saw this happen, they knew the only reason people don't stay with a body. Yeah. Okay. Just, just general. It doesn't matter if they're experienced criminals or not. It is extremely high risk, elevates the level of risk for the offender exponentially every minute they spend with a dead body. You know, like if they if they put the body in the trunk of their car or they're driving across town or whatever they're going to do, they don't do that. The only reason to do that is if either the the location where the body would be found would tie them to you or if people knew you were supposed to be with them. Yeah. When we say that known personal relationship, right? So uh so say in Heyman Lee's case, we have a couple different you have you have a non asking for a ride, you have Don the boyfriend that that was supposed to see her after school or at some point that day. If that person that kills her knows people know that she's with me, then now discovery of the body, they need permanent concealment. They need people to believe that she ran away and not die because as soon as they found out that she was killed, they know they're going to be suspect number one because people know that they were with them. Or if it, or if you kill them and it's in your house, even if you're a random, obviously if somebody finds a body in your house, you're in trouble. Those are reasons to spend time with the body in, in like Heyman Lee's case to transport it across town and bury it, hoping no one would ever find it. That's the imp- indication there that this is someone with a known personal relationship with her. Because if it wasn't, if it was, if it was the latter part of the scenario that I just mentioned where it was the location. So say a random killer kills her in his house and it does, he has no connection to her. No one would connect him to her, but with her body being in his house, that's a problem. We got to move her. You would expect him to move the body, but you wouldn't expect him to bury it. You know, just get it away, right? Get it across town, go into the woods, dump her body and get the hell out of there. You don't bury the body. Just. Just dispose of it. Right. In this case, it's a very different scenario because this murder happened in a public place. It has all of the indicators and call signs that this was a personal cause homicide. Someone who knew Bill and killed Bill for a reason. It was not a random act. But where they chose to commit the crime is what affects the post-defense behavior. So in this case, once Bill's dead, concealing the body was not an option. There's no way that they can conceal the body. He's He's dead in an operating gas station in the middle of town. So the only thing that the the killer can do, which is a very predictable post-defense behavior for a scenario like this, like your Jim and I kind of mentioned, is to distance themselves from the body. Once they shoot him, get away. Get away from the body. Because So and that, that tells you that 
there's probably not a lot of people that can connect that person to Bill. Yeah. Meaning so there's a, there's clearly some sort of relationship there, but it's not like everybody in town knows, well, Zach was going to see Bill tonight at 8.15. Yeah. And now Bill's dead. They didn't think that a lot of people knew they were there. Yeah, the unsub didn't have a reason to be there, which would tie him to Bill. Right. Well, or he had, a, or it wasn't a known reason. A known reason. Clearly, he had a reason. Well, yeah. But but other people didn't know what that reason yeah. is. So you know, every scenario was different. You know, profiling and behavior analysis isn't like just a black and white. If this, then that. There's a whole lot of different levels that that play into it. And clearly, I'm not an expert. As I thought, I nailed my profile. Then Jim said, "Nah." It's something completely different than you said, you know, so there, there's, there's certainly room there, uh, for, for error, but, but in that particular instance, in, it's a very different thing when someone is killed in a very public place, as far as what you would expect for post-defense behavior, because concealing the body was not, uh, you you have temporary concealment and permanent concealment. Elnora Griffin in season two, that was a good example of temporary concealment, meaning they, they moved her car. So people thought she was gone. They covered up the windows so people looking in wouldn't see her body. They knew that at some point somebody's going to be like, okay, let's go in and see what's going on and find her in there. But they're trying to buy time. I mean, so then you say, why would they do that? They're doing that because they need time to establish an alibi, to destroy evidence, to try to distance themselves. And then, but it's another indicator that that is someone who had a known personal relationship and someone who had a known reason to be there. You know, so they, they, that person that killed her knows people were expecting me to be here when she died at 11 o'clock at night on Thursday. So I need no one to find her until Friday. And so maybe they'll think she got killed in the morning, whatever, because they know that that location and that time will tie them to the crime. So they use temporary concealment to establish that. And so there's, there's a lot of different factors that play in, but I don't think that the fact, I know that the fact, that there was no body concealment in Bill's case doesn't affect anything what we what we would be looking for for post defense behavior because he was killed in public. Don wants to know: Do Danny and Bill look alike? No, not at all. Uh, Bill was tall and thin; he was six foot one. And uh, Danny Hartley, I know from some record I've seen pictures of him and some of his records. Obviously, weight can fluctuate, but but Danny's five foot six. So Danny's a short guy and Bill's a tall guy. Yeah, that's quite a bit difference. Mm-hmm. All right. And Summer says, Danny Hartley says he lost two years of his life. What does he mean? Was he questioned as a person of interest for two years? Did he go off the rails for two years? Or did I miss something? My understanding is just that he went into a dark depression. That was the way, again, it was tough to hear him. And he was he was pretty emotional during the time uh, that we were talking. But that was my impression that just he just went into a depression. I don't know if that resulted in drugs, alcohol, anything like that, but basically he described it as just a, a period of time in his life he can barely remember because it was it was just so hard on him. I mean, he he lost as you as you heard him say, you know, he he blames himself. He said he he said that he's he he's getting to a point where he knows logically that there's no way he could have known that was going to happen. But at the same time, for a long time, he blamed himself because he was there with Bill. He almost always, which I did confirm from other police reports that, that from neighbors around the gas station, that that Danny actually was there almost every night helping Bill close. And that particular night, he Bill says, "Don't go. I want you to stay." 
and Danny leaves. Then he comes back, you know, 40 minutes later, he said, or an hour later, however long it was, and Bill's dead. You know, it was hard to hear him, but what he was saying was, if I had stayed, if I hadn't left, either this wouldn't have happened or we'd both be dead. And, and at least for those couple years, he felt like either one of those would have been, it would, would have been better than finding out that his best friend was dead. Yeah. Ellen says, do we know if Bill owned a gun or had access to one at the store? Now, I've seen no indication that Bill owned a gun, and I know for sure there was no access to one at the store. John says, regarding a history of gang activity in the area, where do you turn to to learn more about something like that? Would local school teachers who have been teaching for a long time in the area be a good resource? Well, uh, we, we know a little bit. I found through some recordings and police interviews and some of the reports, and you heard me ask Danny Hartley about it on the episode, about a, a, a gang called the Northsiders. That's something we're going to do an episode on. it. I'm, I'm actually going to interview someone tonight that knows quite a bit about it. And so it's just like everything else. You know, you, you, you just you, you find your way in, you find a seed and then you start working your way out from there to to gather more information about it. But from what Danny said, the Northsiders were originally a prison gang and they were kind of a white supremacist, white pride, whatever you want to call it, prison gang that spilled out of prison. And they were again, another part was hard to hear him. He said yeah, they were they were absolutely known for violence, not necessarily murdering people, but being violent for sure so do we know if there's a prison in the vicinity of bloomington i don't know for sure i I think i think so not too far but it's all it's all relative in southern illinois because or central illinois because everything's so spread out yeah because i was just curious because it seems like if there's a prison relatively close then it makes sense for them to for a gang if they come out of prison to be there right but if it if there's not a prison close that means we have somebody that is from that town that went to prison that came back out of prison and traveled there so it could be something else to look into yeah 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 it's curious i'm curious as to how that i'm sure probably so peoria is a pretty big town that's only about i don't know 15 20 minutes away maybe a little more so it could be a prison around there or something i don't know but we'll yeah we'll definitely be looking more into that all right and our last question comes from angela what time did danny say he left the gas station also is it possible gutierrez saw danny hanging out by the counter then the killer wouldn't have been there that long I definitely do not think it's possible that Gutierrez saw Danny because, as I mentioned, Danny is five foot six. He's a short guy, and the guy that was described by Gutierrez was very tall and thin with long, skinny legs. So that definitely was not Danny Hartley. As far as what time Danny left, that's a harder question to answer than you might think because there has been a lot of different versions of that story between Danny Hartley and Deion Rhodes, who was with him that night. And that's what we're going to be covering on Sunday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Five logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. 
And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And you can also connect with Mike, at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram, at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. That was a long way to get to that point. <laughs> right back where you started. Talk about my auntie in Colorado. <laughs> right back where you my started. My auntie in Colorado with a, her first debit card. Jeez, and I was amazed. Was fun. It was a good time. It was a poor episode. I know. <laughs> Jenny. Raspberry. Jenny. That's all I hear. Jenny. Yeah. No, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Yep. I know what you were doing, Zach. I'm not a, I was doing a different thing. I don't care. <laughs> you said door top. I know. I ran out of breath, too. And she's actually here today to tell you about her favorite. Pr- she's actually here today to tell you about her. F- God damn it. You're really bad at this. <laughs> well, you keep moving and talking and making noise. And she's actually here with me today to tell you about her favorite. <laughs> <laughs> now? Mm-hmm. Oh. A way leave in conditioner and it left my hair feeling. You can't do any of that oh. stuff. <laughs> So I have to start over now? But in my last box I got, start there. We'll make it work. Perfect. Get the fuck out of here. Thank you. God. <laughs> fuck. Put that in there. I love you. Hate doing that. So unnatural. <laughs>